Okay, we are in the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. So if you have found Deuteronomy, go past that, you'll see Judges, and right past that, you'll see Ruth. If you've hit 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. Okay, and let's pick it up again in Ruth chapter 2. We'll pick it up from verse 1. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who, who, to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter, Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servant draws. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to the people that you did not previously know. All right. So, we had talked about verses 1 and 2 last time of Ruth chapter 2. And now in verse 3 it says that Ruth went ahead and she went And she gleaned in the fields uh, after the reapers. So, the paid reapers are, are, so they they, uh, reap this this, uh, grain in in the barley harvest. And then she's going up and picking up what's left over. And that's what the poor were allowed to accumulate, as we had talked about last time. But it says in verse 3, she she departed and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now remember who Elimelech was. Elimelech was Naomi's husband, so Ruth's father-in-law. And she happened to come to the field of Boaz, who was of the same family as Elimelech. And Boaz, it says in verse 1, was a man of great wealth. So my Bible says she happened to come to the portion. The actual literal translation is her chance, 
chanced. Perchance chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's a, it's a, a remarkable way of putting it. Her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Of all fields to have ended up in, she ended up in the field of Boaz, who happened to be a very wealthy man, who, as we're going to see, turns out to be extremely gracious and kind. She didn't know that she was going to to gather in this field of a relative of her, her former husband. She didn't know this. Her chance chanced upon this field. You see how God works in the lives of His people. By chance, it says her chance chance. So she had no idea where she was going, but God directed her, go in that field. She happened to go in that field. As I look back at my life, I see the hand of God. And as we as believers trust in God, trust in His ways, very often He will do this in our lives. He will often lead by simple little circumstances that we can't imagine would take place. Look in in, uh, Psalm chapter 16. This is a verse... In Psalm chapter 16, there's a verse that I have meditated on for years, realizing that so often God places me in, 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 uh, in the right places where I really ought to be. Look in, in Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So look what the psalmist says. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. God supports the lot of His people. If we would but pray to Him and ask Him to help us and be a strength to us, He places us in the right locations, in the right areas, around the right people. God does this. It says, of all fields, Ruth happened to come into the field of Boaz. Of all the fields that she could have come into, her chance chanced. I'll give you an example. When I started out as an assistant professor, I was going to start out making antibiotics and and, uh, macrocyclic antibiotics. These are large ring antibiotics. And I had one other outside project in an area that, that uh, was called molecular electronics. And it was an area that was really far out from the mainstream. Nobody was really doing it in those days. And I recruited these students, and my first student who came to my group said that she wanted to work on the molecular electronics project. And I was really surprised. I thought, you know, in my own heart, I thought, this can't be. That, that project's really going nowhere. And it's why don't you work on something I really know about? But she said she wanted to work on that. Well, little did I know that God was setting up something. And as the months went by, I started applying for many grants to make these, these uh, antibiotics, and none of those grants were being funded. But all of a sudden, the grant that was funded was to, as a long shot, I submitted a proposal to a program where only two people would get funded. And I didn't didn't know that only two people would get funded out of the entire country in this program. 
Had I known, I would not have even applied. Especially because I didn't know that area. But anyway, my chance chanced to have applied for that. And I got that funding for that area. All of a sudden, we were in molecular electronics, which was going to explode about seven or eight years after that time. And by explode, I mean everybody would want to get into it. And all of a sudden, I was working in an area that didn't even have a term that people used. The term now that's used is, is the term nanotechnology. And all of a sudden, I was working in this area of nanotechnology, and I would meet people, and they'd say, what are you doing on this project? And I'd tell them, they go, oh, come on, that's not real. And what are you doing wasting your time? Well, I have a student working in this area. So we started to publish papers, and I was amazed at how easy it was to publish papers in this area because nobody else was doing it. It was this wide-open area. And then we made some simple little molecules, really simple little things, and I got a call from a reporter at Scientific American magazine, which is a huge readership. It has over a million readership, which for science is really big. You know, usually you write a paper in science and four people might read that paper. <laughs> and the reporter says, I have heard that your group has synthesized the most complex molecule ever made. This is a joke. This is really a joke. This, there's nothing close to this. However, I didn't want to, uh, you know, just pop her bubble. So I said, well, maybe not the most complex, but it really is quite intricate. And and we started talking, and all of a sudden, all of this press started coming, and and, and the press machine turned on, and I I learned something about working with the press and, and, and getting messages across. And my chance chanced into this area. If you walk with God, you will see your chance will happen to chance upon certain areas that you have no idea of now. So often, what has happened since that time is the same sort of thing. We start working in an area five to ten years before the area becomes popular and blossoms. You say, oh, well, you know, you just have this tremendous insight. No! It's chance. My chance chanced upon that area. I had a conversation with a student, and all of a sudden, I said, well, well, why don't you try working on that? We publish a few papers on it, and then all of a sudden, other people start jumping in the area, and then boom, the area just blossoms. If you walk with God, He will cause you to fall into areas that you can't imagine that you could be successful in. You don't even know it. I mean, people would say, how did you learn all about electronics? They said, I never knew anything about electronics. I still don't. I just know a few little terms. And I parrot them very well. And people think I know, and they start nodding their heads. So in other words, I've I've heard my students talk about this, and I say what they said. You can chance upon the field of Boaz if you walk with God. God very often leads people by circumstances. He very often does. So God wanted Jesus to be born in Bethlehem because that's where it was prophesied. His mother and father lived in a town called Nazareth, which is, I don't know, maybe, I'm guessing, 150 miles away from Nazareth, something like that, between Bethlehem and Nazareth. And how is he going to get them there? Well, he could have 
spoken to Joseph in the middle of the night and said, get your wife down to Bethlehem because this child needs to be born there. But he didn't do that. What did he do? He had a census put out by, by uh, Augustus Caesar, a census, saying that everybody had to go their, their hometown to register. Well, all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary, Mary is great with child, probably it took the threat of a sword from the emperor to say to get down to your hometown to get Mary in this large state to go. Because if maybe if Joseph had said, well, I, I really feel a leading like we ought to go to Bethlehem now, she'd have probably said, right, I'm not going now. So the emperor comes and says, get down there or you die. So everybody has to go back to their hometown. This is being led by a circumstance where God works through the emperor of Rome to give a decree for everybody to go back to their hometown. And in that way, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. God often leads by circumstances. And if we keep Him as the center of our focus and pray to Him, He will often lead us into the right areas. And I've seen students so bent out of shape because they say, well, you know, I studied four years and I studied this. And now the only job is that I'm supposed to do that. I say, well, good. That's good. Now you bring all this skill set from what you learned in this area and apply it to this area. This is a great thing to do. And so what we found ourselves doing as a group was entering new areas and bringing our skill set of synthetic chemistry into new areas that never had been visited before by a synthetic chemist. So all of a sudden there were all these things that I could do in this area that nobody else could do. Now granted, many times I reinvented the wheel in that area and reviewers had to point it out, you know, this has been done in the 1930s. In this discipline, obviously, Tour doesn't know this area. And they were right. But then there were other things that I did that got this remarkable, and, and I didn't even deserve it, level of attention. And this is what happens when you keep your eyes open to the Lord. He can lead you. He can lead you into new things, into new disciplines. And there you can really shine, where you bring the skill set from one area into another area. So, this thing of happening upon the field of Boaz, of chancing upon the field, goes right in line with Psalm 16. You support my lot. What is a lot? A lot is, you know, you, you, you're, you're fishing into a hat to pull out something. You support my lot. So even in the things that would appear random, like choose a field, any field, well, she happened to draw Boaz's field. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Thou dost support my lot. There are things that God supports us in. You keep seeking God. Don't get upset. Don't get bitter. Don't get all strung out because of the economy. God is able to work. He's able to work in this environment. You can do that. You know, they, they say that the the unemployment rate is 10%. What that means, and usually it's usually around 45 or 5%. So there's 5% more people unemployed than there are normally. Well, still, there's 90% of the people are employed. 
Now, when you've got the God of heaven and earth supporting your life, you trust Him. You trust Him. I don't have a job for you. It's not my job to get you a job. It's God's job to take care of you. And He will. You seek Him, and He will care for you. The Scriptures are clear. It says, I have never seen the children of the righteous begging bread, David said. I've never seen the children of the righteous having to beg bread. You follow God, He will support your lot. Things will go well for you when you seek God. It may require that you move. It may require that that other things happen, that this deal on a house falls through. Shuri and I really wanted to buy a certain house once. And everything was set to buy this house. But for some reason, and I'm not sure why, I said to this attorney that was filling out the forms, I said, okay, on, on this deal, I just want you to write in there that if asbestos is found in this house, that we can pull out of the deal without losing our, our earnest money. So he put that in there, and the seller had no problem with that. And it turns out that I just had an asbestos test done on the house shortly before we moved in. And the guy went and he took a few samples, little nodules on the ceiling, that, in the blown ceiling. And sure enough, it was just full of asbestos. So we were able to pull out. You know, God works in ways to protect us. He does certain things to protect His people. He supports their lot. All right, let's read on in, in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Very simple little thing. So he comes from Bethlehem. He comes from the town. He comes back to his fields and he says to his reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they reply to him, May the Lord bless you. This is the time, it says that the book of Ruth occurred during the time that the judges judged. So this is the life of a family during the time of the judges, probably now right after the time of Gideon, where Gideon had delivered them from the hand of the Midianites, and and so the famine was now over. And the time of the judges was a time of real godlessness in Israel. And even Gideon, after this breakthrough of the Lord, giving him victory in battle, came back and set up a bunch of idols. And he ended up having 70 sons. So you know how many wives he must have had. A bunch of wives. And he set up, and he, he would put them over different parts of the land, and he set up all these idols. And it ended up that all of his sons end up getting killed except for one. But there was great rebellion in the land and great idol worship. But it shows you that even though the leadership of the land at that time was basically corrupt, there was a family, and in particular this man Boaz, that loved the Lord. So much so that when he would come to his field of reapers, he would say, the Lord bless you. Now, what are reapers like? You know, they're, they're, they're farming type people. They're kind of gruff and rough and tough guys. You know, they're not like professors. I mean, the most they ever do is plunk away at a keyboard. I mean, these guys work with barbed wire and, and uh, sickles all day, you know, going and, and swinging this thing. These are tough guys. You know, big shoulders, tough guys. And Boaz comes. And Boaz at this time is probably quite an old man. 
And he comes and he says, the Lord be with you. And they reply to him, may the Lord bless you. Remember, this is a time in Israel where people weren't speaking like this. You read all about the judges. They didn't talk like this. But Boaz set the tone for his home. Boaz set the tone for his place of work. He said, the Lord bless you. And they replied, may the Lord... He said, the Lord be with you. And they replied, may the Lord bless you. You will set the tone for your home. You will set the tone for your work environment. You say, well, I'm not the boss. Doesn't matter. The people who work around you, if you set a godly tone... They will respond in godliness toward you. So, when, when my group, when my research group gets together, we don't have alcohol. I've never had to tell my group, no alcohol. They just know that I don't drink. And I'm not saying that the Word of God says you shall not drink. This is a personal decision upon myself. I put it upon myself, not upon you. So, I don't drink. So, all research groups, They'll get, you know, sauced pretty well at their group parties, but not at mine. Because I have set the tone for my group. They don't use four-letter language around me. And if any one of them ever does, I don't have to say a word. The whole rest of the group looks at this person like, how could you have done that in his presence? I don't say a word. And it never happens again from their mouth. Because they learn from the others around them. Because I don't speak like that to them. And so they don't speak like that around me. And I'm not saying that they don't speak like that in their own private times. But around me, around the group, when I am there, I set the tone for this group. You will set the tone for, for, for your group. For your group, for your surrounding, for the group of people that you are around. You can even go into a very coarse, jesting sort of group. And you live your life in a way before God and people will conform to what you are. You will see this. And some people will try to test this sometimes. And I've been around, I work in, in, in a lot of um, Department of Defense committees and a lot of old generals and admirals. And they, they, they like to impress people, I think, by, by sometimes the type of language that they can use. And I don't reply back that way. I just look at them. And then it's interesting to see that they stop speaking like that. Now, these guys are generals and admirals, and they're used to commanding a lot. But you would be amazed at the influence that you could have when you come in with good. If you go to a group that, where the boss is very abrasive and, and, and speaks in certain ways the people in his research group will be speaking like that as well. Look in, uh, um, there's this verse in Proverbs 29, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 12, that, that mentions something like this. Proverbs 29, verse 12 says, If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. In other words, what the ruler, the pattern the ruler sets all his ministers will follow that pattern. If you walk in honesty and integrity and speak well of things, people will do that in your group. If you set a proper tone, a proper tone will be set. 
You know, if you go into my labs, you won't, you know, it would be a very rare thing to find, to find, um, you know, Playboy type pictures up, you know, at a guy's desk. It just won't happen. It just won't happen. You set the tone for what's in your group. This is what Boaz did. He says, I bless my people, they bless me in return. It's no problem for me to say to one of my group members, unbelievers, to say to them, God bless you. God bless you. They just look at me and smile. And that's their, their way of returning the same sort of compliment. You will set the tone for your work. How you live your life will affect the people around you, the community of people around you. Okay, let's read on. Then Boaz, in verse 5 of Ruth chapter 2, Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. So, we know that, that, that uh, Ruth was probably fairly good-looking because he goes on to, to praise her for not going into the fields of other people later on in the chapter. He says, you know, you could have had anybody you wanted, rich or poor, young or old, you could have had anyone. So she had to be a pretty good-looking girl. But also, because she was such a decent person, he says, you know, you could have had anyone. He says to her later on, he sees this woman, and look what he says. He says, whose young woman is this? And then later on, in, in, in verse 8, it says, it, I'm sorry, in verse, um, uh, in verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Look at the way Boaz refers to her. First of all, his calling her daughter probably says something about the age difference between them. And, you know, sometimes I read Jewish commentaries, and, and it's interesting to see what the rabbis say about this. They have absolutely no scriptural basis for this, but they say Boaz was 80, Ruth was 40 at this time. I don't know if that's true, but certainly there must have been some age difference if he's calling her daughter. But look at the way he says, he says, whose young woman is this? In other words, who does, what family does she belong to? Whose young woman is this? Not like, well, hello. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's not like that. He's saying, what family does she come from? It's not like he's walking up to her and trying to impress her as an individual. He ri- realizes She must come from a certain family. I want to know what family she belongs to. Whose young woman is this? What family does she belong to? You see, there's a difference here. Look in in, uh, in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is this this, uh, book that's... um, Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, and right after Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes and then Song of Solomon. If you've hit Isaiah, you've gone too far. So it's just before Isaiah's Song of Solomon. And this bridegroom, look what he says of his bride in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. 
Look how he refers to this woman who he loves. He refers to her first as his sister. Your sister you don't lust after, your sister you protect. He refers to her as his sister, his bride. She is first his sister. A woman in the Lord is first your sister in Christ. And then again, he says the same sort of thing in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. And again in verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. He refers to her as his sister. You see the difference. It's not a lone woman. It is a woman to be protected. And you can see what happens then with Ruth's grandson, who is King David. Ruth eventually marries Boaz. They have a son, Obed, and they have another son, Jesse, and Jesse's son is David. So, grandmother, great-grandmother, you can see this relationship that now happens. Now let's look at what got David into trouble with Bathsheba. Look in... in, uh, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We know that David falls into sin with Bathsheba. How does he, what what, what does he look at with respect to Bathsheba? 2 Samuel chapter 11. So Samuel is right after Ruth. You got 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged Reba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and went. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. So David was supposed to have been out to battle. It says at the time when kings go out to battle, why wasn't David out in battle? When you have too much time on your hands, too much free time, your mind then starts wandering into trouble. David started walking around up on the roof of his palace. And you can go today and see this hillside on which David's palace was. The foundation parts are still there. But it's at the top of the hillside. And everything else in the city there is below that. He could have easily been on the rooftop and seen down in. I don't think Bathsheba was doing anything wrong. And the reason I say that is because God used her to father Solomon, eventually, that was going to be the next king. Had she been a prostitute, it would have been very different. He absolutely overpowered her. He was the king. She was bathing in her own home. And so there she was in her own compound area. You have a wall and a fence around it, but of course the king can see everything. She was not a seductress. Had she been, she would not have been the mother of the kingship there. And where she was the one of all of David's wives to have gotten the blessing. But David inquires, he says, tell me about this woman. And what do his servants reply? His servants know exactly what David is thinking. And when a man is thinking a certain way about a woman, let me tell you, his friends know exactly the way he is thinking. 
he asks this question, hey, tell me about that girl. His friends know what he's thinking. So they are sure to make sure that David knows. They said, oh, that woman, that's Bathsheba. And by the way, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, they're saying, David, watch out. That's the daughter of Eliam, and that is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, who are Eliam and who are Uriah the Hittite? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And there is a list here of David's mighty men, 37 in all. This is like my research group. I have 25 people. I know all of them very well. This was 37 men with whom David had fought for a long time. David knew these men very, very well. He had fought alongside these people. These were the men that defended David against Saul. These were the men that were defending his kingdom now as they were out fighting with the general Joab. Who is Eliam? Look in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34. Eliphet, the son of Abishai, the son of Mac, the Machite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So he's listing out these great soldiers. One of them was Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Eliam. And you say, well, how do we know it's the same Eliam? When you are in the same book, the Bible is very careful with names. And if there's multiple people with the same names, it puts a descriptor on it. There's a reference to Eliam earlier on in the book, and Samuel is very careful to use, or whoever the writer is of this portion of Second Samuel, to use that name, Eliam. This was one of David's mighty men. That's why his soldiers could say to him, that's his attendants, that's the daughter of Eliam. You know the guy who fights alongside of you? That's his daughter. And by the way, that's, that's uh, Uriah's wife. Well, who's Uriah the Hittite? The last verse, verse 39 in Second Samuel chapter 23. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Uriah was one of his mighty men. That's one of your friend's wives. Watch out, David. You sure you want to do this? That's your friend's daughter and your other friend's wife. And remember it says Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. Well, who was Ahithophel? It says specifically Ahithophel the Gileonite. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor. David's trusted counselor was Ahithophel. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. As soon as they said, that's Eliam's daughter, Uriah's wife, he knew exactly that that's that's my trusted counselor, my advisor's granddaughter. Didn't matter to David. He said, bring her to me. And he slept with her. He neglected to realize that this woman was not just her own. And in fact, God continues to refer to her as the wife of Uriah until after David repented. Even after Uriah is dead, he says to David through Nathan, you took the wife of Uriah. He didn't say you took this woman who's your wife, even though David had married her at this point. It wasn't until David repented and moved on from there that she referred to her as his wife. 
When you take a woman, men, when you take a woman outside of her being a child of God, a child of some man and some woman, you begin to objectify her. This is why Boaz looked at this woman and he says, whose woman is she? You remember that these women that you deal with are children of God and He cares for them. These are His daughters. And these are children of some man. The way you treat other women, you will reap what you sow. People will do the same with your daughters. They will do the same with your daughters. He looks at this woman and he says, Whose young woman is she? He doesn't say, hello there. He says, tell me about your family. Tell me about your testimony. Are you a child of God? Tell me about your testimony. Have you come to know the Lord? Put it in that context. Tell me about your father. Let me talk with him. Can I talk to your father? Can I talk with your mother? Can I meet them? You know, we have this policy in our home that, that when, when my daughters were, were asked to go to... Uh, the prom and stuff, that we would say, sure, the young man has to come with his family to the home. And I would meet the mother and the father and the siblings would come and we would make good friends and we'd see the quality of the family, the quality of the people. My son has just asked a young girl to the senior prom and they say, you know the rule. And sure enough, she and her mom are going to be coming. The parents are, are, are not, not uh, the parents are divorced and she lives with her mother and the mother will come. And I will meet the young lady and I will meet the young lady's mother. And um, a friend of mine knows this young lady and so I'm on the phone with a friend of mine and I say, tell me about this young lady. Tell me about her. I want to know. This is not just an isolated woman. There are families here. There are relationships here. And this is a good thing. The Bible speaks highly of this thing. Boaz was a righteous man. He says, the Lord be with you. His men said, the Lord bless you. He said, the same man who says this says, whose young woman is this? Tell me about her family. When David disregarded the family and the origin, he objectified a woman and used her and abused her. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. Father, thank you for the life of this man, Boaz, who could look to a woman and say, tell me about her family. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and do a work in their hearts that they would seek you and seek your face and walk your way. Father, I pray that they would set the tone for things around them, for environments around them. They would set the tone. And Father, I pray that they would learn to see that you are guiding them in their careers by the mercies and the grace of God, that in spite of what's happening to the economy, that you can guide them. Father, I pray your grace to be upon them. Father, your mercies abound upon us, I pray. And have mercy upon these young people in the name of Jesus. Amen.